Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspectives on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode, Venture Growth Investing, is for institutional and professional investors. I am Laureen Costa, Portfolio Manager in the Private Equity Group of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. With me today are Kathy Rosa and Jonathan Ross, both portfolio managers in the private equity group of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. There are so many different private equity topics that we could cover, such as the secondary markets or what's happening in leveraged buyouts. But for today's discussion, let's focus on the environment and the opportunities that are available in venture growth. So let's start with a little bit of background. In the early 2000s, investing was all about early stage venture and the time it took an early stage venture capital company to achieve liquidity, whether it was through an M&A process or an IPO, was typically around three years. Today, that average time to liquidity is more like five, even seven years, and many companies are staying private even longer. Kathy, what's behind this trend of venture capitalists holding on to the companies longer? You're absolutely right, Lorraine, and I think about Amazon as that classic example from the earlier segment, and you look at the market cap at which that company went public and how early relatively in its life, and you can compare that to Facebook, a company we all know and some of us love, which took you know over eight years from first round of financing to going public. So we've really seen an extension in the holding period of venture-backed companies. Now, that's been challenging for investors who were in the venture capital markets earlier and are still holding portfolios that have had a much longer duration with much less liquidity. But it's also created opportunities in the market for capital to come in to some of those companies that are staying private longer and still need growth funding. So why did that change? Well, there are a whole host of reasons we can point to. Certainly, we can look at changes in the dynamics of the public market and whether it be how options pricing had worked or changes with Sarbanes-Oxley from a regulatory perspective. We had hoped to see some of that dissipate a bit when you looked at things like the Jobs Act in the past few years, but that really hasn't been as much the case. So it sounds like the idea of the holding period being longer is both a positive and a negative from the way you're talking about it. So let's stay a little bit on the positive side. Why do you see this as an opportunity for this longer holding period? When you're traditionally investing in technology companies, you're taking risk about the product, the development, will the market develop? When you invest in companies that have been through the first part of that life cycle, suddenly, ideally, you're looking at a company where you're not taking traditional venture risk, you're taking growth execution risk. So these companies have customers, they have revenues, and you can really, from a diligence perspective, have a very different set of metrics around which you can evaluate the company from an investment perspective. So that's a really good backdrop as to why we're discussing this topic today. But before we drill down into some of the specific areas of opportunity, let's address the elephant in the room, or in this case, should I say the unicorn in the room. Everything the media is picking up about this trend is surrounding this term unicorn, which is defined as companies, private companies, that are valued at $1 billion or more. So Jonathan, these valuations actually can be 
quite intimidating and makes some investors leery. Do you agree with Kathy? Is there still an opportunity here? No, thanks, Lorraine. And no, I definitely agree with Kathy on that front. I think first you start with uh, one of your first words there, which is media, right? They're there to drive eyeballs, sell newspapers. So they're going to focus on the larger companies in the growth space, such as Airbnb, such as Uber, such as Palantir. And while when you look in the growth market, these companies certainly can be richly valued, and some of the companies will present a challenging valuation backdrop, whether you look at them on a risk-adjusted or absolute basis, when you drill down a bit deeper, you can certainly find terrific opportunities below that. One space in particular, for example, the automotive space, which is one that's been getting a tremendous amount of attention in recent time about. You look at a space where there is significant disruption going on with regard to modern mobility solutions, including autonomous driving. Two public companies that people sort of think about in that space, Tesla and Mobileye, had significant and expensive valuations depending on your perspective. So if you look at Tesla, a company that is now the richest automotive company on the face of the planet at just under $50 billion, is trading at a forward revenue multiple of around five times and a forward EBITDA multiple of over 36 times. You look at Mobileye, which has just agreed to be acquired by Intel for $15.3 billion, which roughly translates to roughly a 30 times forward multiple on revenue and roughly a 54 times forward multiple on EBITDA. So very expensive valuations, even in the public space, when an investor is looking to take advantage of the thematic around this changing mobility landscape from a pure play basis. So while we certainly agreed with the macro trend and the disruptive nature of it, given our time in the space, we were able to identify a company, in this case one called Clear Motion, that we think will dovetail given what their product is, which is they've developed a digital chassis for the automotive space, that while it will dovetail well with these themes, because it's a private company, because it was flying a little bit below the radar and the way we would have sourced the opportunity, we were able to source an investment there at what we believe was an attractive valuation relative to some other ways we could have participated in that opportunity set. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan. And maybe we can also put in context how much is there out there from a unicorn perspective. So at least to date, the peak of the unicorn funding market was in 2015. So in that market, from a total venture perspective, there were over 10,000 financing rounds. So that's a lot. Now, easily two-thirds of that was more earlier and mid-stage companies relative to later stage. But even of that number, there were only 40 companies with new valuation rounds of a billion dollars or above. And there were only 77 companies that had financings that were 100 million and above. So certainly some of the companies you named are those that we see every day in the headlines. But when you drill down into the broader marketplace, we really do think there's a very large opportunity set. It's just harder to get your hands around because you can't open up a Bloomberg screen and pull up what are all of the private companies in that stage. So identifying, sourcing, and how you then diligence those companies is a much different marketplace. Having said that, valuations can still be a challenge when you think about how much should you be paying for the potential growth in those companies. Valuations are a big question, and there's the valuation on the goings inside. And even when you're diligencing and looking at company, you have to think about the valuation on the exit. And when you're talking about fast growth companies, what you want to be careful of is not paying for all that growth at the entry point. So we can talk a little bit more about valuations. I think one of the key things that has happened broadly in this sort of in this growth equity market, particularly on the tech side, is how the public market has done a fair amount of repricing, which has impacted the private market. 
So if you look back at the end of December of 2013, so go back a number of years, your average tech company in the public markets that had previously been venture-backed was trading at north of 10 times price to sales. If you go to mid-2015, that had come down to seven times. If you go to the end of 2015, you were down at 4.7 times. So we've really seen down from the end of 13 until the end of last year, reduction of more than 50% in the valuations at which we're trading. But so to play devil's advocate, Kathy, if the public markets aren't being as kind to these IPOs, as an investor, why are you still interested in investing in these venture growth companies? Yeah, well, it's a good question. And if you look at the growth rates of those types of companies, and maybe we can spend some time with a few more examples, when you're getting in earlier and you still have companies compounding in that rate, if you think about holding periods of three to five years, even if it's at, I'll use the term multiple contractions, again, that value matters relative to where you think the exit. I think the other thing that becomes important is that we love to talk about IPOs, but really a lot of the companies in this marketplace end up being acquired. And I think that dovetails a bit with the absolute valuation consideration one has to have, which is when you think about M&A as a path, and look, it's hard to underwrite to an M&A outcome, but there are all companies we've looked at where you know that on a probability-adjusted basis, M&A is the likely exit route. You're just not entirely sure. You know who the universe of buyers are. You're not obviously sure who the specific buyer will necessarily be. But while relative valuation is important, and that's where you start thinking about public market multiples and things of that nature, at some point, getting in where you have valuation support and an absolute valuation that will be supportive of an M&A exit that still can generate an attractive risk-adjusted return in that investment is an important dynamic. And so that's where, again, sort of peeling back the onion, drilling down more specifically, as Kathy was mentioning earlier, is such an important piece of the puzzle. This is so interesting. I was expecting to talk about a lot of different types of topics around venture growth investing, and I was expecting us to go into some of the industry sectors, but Jonathan, I can tell you, I was not expecting us to talk about automotive today. So thank you for that little surprise here. Let's change gears, and yes, that pun was intended, and talk about another growth sector. Kathy, do you have another sector that is getting attention? I think if you look at from a macro perspective, one of the largest sectors in the economy, broadly speaking, and fastest growing is what's been happening in healthcare. And that's led by everything from broad demographics to what people are trying to do and how they live to regulations and all the changes going on there, whether it be from pharmaceuticals and insurance. So I think that's a really interesting sector, broadly speaking, that has lots of different characteristics. And what we've started to see is that there are certainly many opportunities for technology to be a disruptor in how we're thinking about all factors around healthcare. So whether it's access to healthcare, whether it's electronic medical records, whether it's companies that are changing the dynamics of how we access medicine, those are all really important. And everything from as simple as how do I actually get transparency on the drugs that I'm buying and what they cost to things that are fully behind the scene that we as regular users of it can't see and how it's managed. 
So I think that what we've seen is that that's an area that certainly from a macro perspective has a lot of interesting characteristics. And the question becomes what in the private market is developing around it? And what can you do when things like regulations are so dynamic and how to intersect on that or not? Certainly there have been, again, if you think about the press, right, names that have had real trouble in that sector, whether it be from HIPAA compliance, whether it be because the market for the regulations is changing. But we also see a fair amount of opportunity in that to both reduce costs for all involved, as well as provide better access to each of us and what we need. Have you made a lot of investments in healthcare? It sounds like there's a very large opportunity here. So has this resulted in a lot of investments? No, it hasn't. And that's been part of the problem is the confidence in a relative valuation for some of these companies, even though you know they're doing good things and reducing costs relative to the uncertainty around the marketplace and how the marketplace is going to be a buyer or seller. We have done some interesting things in the primary care sector with a company there that is really technology-based, providing the same services, but in a way that reduces time and expenses for all involved. I like the fact you brought up healthcare, Kathy, because I think it's illustrative of sort of thinking through some of these broader thematics. So data, I mean, it's a four-letter word we all hear probably far too often, especially in the venture growth space. But, you know, healthcare is one of those spaces where data truly is at the leading edge, but will transform that space dramatically. You mentioned regulation as a significant point of risk. It also creates a significant amount of opportunity where I think you can find companies that I want to be careful when I say are regulatory agnostic, but I think everyone can agree, irrespective of where you stand, whether you're a doctor, a payer, a patient, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, that the one thing we need is a more efficient healthcare system, full stop. There are questions about how you get there. But in a combination of data with some of these new young companies that are growing up, irrespective of what that regulatory backdrop is, there will be large companies that are built that improve the efficiency and the cost of delivering healthcare and ultimately improve sort of the outcome to cost ratio. And I think those are the opportunities that we're really focused on trying to identify. And that's one of the really interesting, unique things about investing in the private markets is that that level of, and I'm going to use the word disruption or innovation or change, oftentimes it's very difficult in a larger established company that's already part of the ecosystem to make that 180 degree and decide to implement it differently. And so the private markets and particularly the venture capital markets really have the opportunity to build from the ground up and can do it differently. So I think that that's really one of the only areas from an investment perspective in the marketplace where you can access that type of really what's gonna be not the subtle change, but what's really gonna be the leapfrog change and doing it differently that three, five years down the road, we're gonna look back and say, that made a lot of sense and it will disrupt or be purchased by the incumbent players. And frankly, it also gives you the opportunity to get a pure play exposure to that thematic. I mean, if you're interested, coming back to cars for a moment, but autonomous driving, sure, you could go buy shares of Google, who's obviously, we all know, working on that solution set. But at no point in the near or medium term, I think, would anyone, including the folks at Google, think of autonomous driving as a material to that company's bottom line, such that owning a share of Google isn't really going to get you exposure to that trend. Similarly in healthcare, you might go buy the stock of a very large payer 
who you think may be trying to implement some of these changes. But yet again, are you really getting exposure to that thematic given the large installed business that that company has? So investing in these private companies, oftentimes smaller businesses, you're in a situation where there is a thematic and potentially a very large disruptive theme that you're investing into, but nevertheless, you're getting bespoke idiosyncratic exposure to that particular dynamic, which I think can be very attractive for investors. Jonathan, you just gave me an idea there about this idea of accessing companies in a theme that are impossible to access through the public markets. The idea here is actually changing gears yet again to another sector, and that would be AR, VR. That's augmented reality or virtual reality. Many years ago, I think it was 2013, 2014, Google introduced Google Glass, and it had all this hoopla around Google Glass, and it was going to be everywhere, and it's pretty much fallen away, and you never hear of it. You don't see people wearing them walking down the street, but it's still an industry that is happening, and behind the scenes, a lot is going on. As we start to talk about it, would you first define what is the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality? Sure. First, virtual reality itself is where you basically create a completely self-contained virtual world with respect to which you're interacting. Augmented reality is really when you're seeing the blending or augmenting of the real world with the virtual world, oftentimes where the user actually knows the difference. I mean, the best example of augmented reality, at least for those folks who do the mobile game experiences, Pokemon Go, that everyone heard about, right? That is an augmented reality solution set. Virtual reality, for the most part, at this point, is just going to be on gaming systems like Oculus, things of that nature that you're going to play inside your home on tethered devices. To your point on the market, look, I think there's almost no one out there who doesn't think that the virtual augmented reality market will be huge. I think everyone uniformly thinks it will be a massive market. Now, there are lots of questions around timing. Right, whether that is five years or 10 years. If you look across Wall Street estimates, at least, you're looking in that time frame of a market on hardware and software that's at least $50 billion, if not bigger. And you're looking at a market that basically doesn't exist today. So that's $50 billion plus of market opportunity that is yet to be created, but I think most people are confident will be created. So certainly, I think from an investor's perspective, it is a significant opportunity in the coming years to invest in companies that will be presenting really attractive opportunities. As a group, it is a space in which we have spent a significant amount of time and ultimately have made two distinct investments, which sort of, I think, play a little bit off of that dynamic, Lorraine, you were highlighting. The first investment we made is in a company called Magic Leap, which is more focused on the hardware development side associated with virtual and augmented reality. It was our network that allowed us to get access to that company, the relationships we have on both the venture capital front as well as with the pre-existing investor in that company that allowed us entree in what was otherwise a fairly closed process. But through our work in the space generally and then looking at Magic Leap more specifically, we really also came to understand that there were going to be other players, tangential players in the space that maybe they're not making the headset you put on, but they may be making the software or hardware that goes into the headset to enable certain activities. So we ended up making a subsequent investment in a company that's focused on 3D motion control. Essentially, their hardware software solution will be incorporated in the hardware, 
and will allow users through hand movements to control their experience. So again, I think thinking about clearly the quality of the company and the technology and their product and what their existing revenue base looks like and how it's grow is important with the valuation. But then you're also thinking about duration and duration helps you set a place to what could that exit valuation look like? And it's interesting. I mean, I think the market today, just given how pricing has declined, both for previously venture-backed IT companies, whereas what we're seeing in the private markets is actually more attractive today than, to your point, Laureen, it was two or three years ago, just given the broad trend. Now, everything prices differently. So I think within that, you can ideally always find something that could be interesting or attractive, but you're going to take different risks around it. From a broader market perspective, clearly things have come down. It was interesting to see in the marketplace just recently, Cloudera going out, and you could read that the early stage investors did very well. Plus, in one of the later rounds, they actually sold part of their shares while they were still in the private market. So the earlier stage folks are also utilizing the growth market to ideally shorten their duration or take some risk off the table. And then where it actually priced relative to that last round. So again, from a valuation perspective, you have to be very cognizant of where you might be in the markets and what the duration of that is. So Kathy and Jonathan, in the last couple of examples, you talked about investing in Magic Leap and then your experience through Magic Leap led you to think about other aspects of the AR and VR industry, which led you to Leap Motion. Does that mean you are a top-down type of investor, a bottom-up type investor? How did you come at these two companies? I think there's no question that there are broad categories within the market that you want to look at and understand. But fundamentally, it's really a bottom-up approach. There might be sectors where you know, you don't see any company that you think makes sense relative to whether it be the quality of the business, the quality of the management team, what their trends look like, where they're pricing. The other thing about this market is that unlike public markets where you can buy into a company at any point in time based on volume trading in the market, that's not the case here. So it wouldn't be unusual for a company to perhaps have raised capital and then not even think about it for another 12, 24, 36 months, depending on the context of the business. So you do have to understand the sectors and the movement, but really look at company opportunity set and fundamentally value and diligence it from that particular business perspective. You don't need to be everywhere. So again, I think that it's a different context relative to saying I've got a macro theme that's growing. The vast majority of what we've looked at in healthcare, we were talking about earlier from a broad market perspective, seems very attractive, done essentially, you know, essentially nothing. So I think you need to be aware of and understand, but that's not really what drives the investment decisions. No, look, Kathy, that is a great point. And the fact that we focus on the bottoms-up aspect, it's absolutely critical. I mean, a hit rate of less than 5% with the 600 investments reviewed, where we've actually deployed capital. I think the thematics that we might look at from a top-down perspective are critically important to trying to understand the market opportunity these companies have. But without having those dynamics you highlighted, a terrific management team, a defensible business model, you know, a clear path for growth in a way that we think on a risk-adjusted basis makes a tremendous amount of sense for our investors. 
That is simply just not an investment we can make, despite what might otherwise be a terrific top-down opportunity. So let's think about the whole life cycle of these companies. We've talked about how you're finding them through the network, making the investments at hopefully reasonable or attractive valuations. The companies continue to grow nicely and then can get acquired, often get acquired. But in those instances where they're going public, is there any growth left in these companies? Because a lot of our listeners invest across the spectrum. And these companies, as I mentioned, the life cycle of the company, is there still continued growth after the companies go public that's worth holding on for? Well, gosh, I wish there was a universal answer to that for all of the businesses. And not necessarily, I think, really. There have been tremendous examples. We talked about Facebook earlier, and that company has continued to grow tremendously and evolve its business model and take advantage of the opportunity in front of it. I look at a company that we were involved with and which was a very good investment for our clients, which is Twitter. And it's turned out, quite frankly, to be disappointment if you were a public equity investor in that business. And that, I think, is related to things like how did it continue to execute against monetization, against evolution of the product, even though clearly it's got tremendous use and we hear it in the newspaper every day because of people who like to tweet, but it's not being from a revenue profits evolution, a good public company investment. So I think that, you know, ideally what you're really finding are sustainable long-term businesses that can really have that trajectory. But clearly, even non-venture-backed companies are going to go through their own downfalls in execution. I agree with all that. I would also sort of maybe peel back the onion a little bit more. When you talk about growth, you know, the question is, well, how much growth? So when we're making a private investment, oftentimes the companies we're investing in are doubling year over year from a top-line perspective. So you're looking at companies that could be growing you know, 100 150% in the time frame of our investment period. When you look at companies that start entering the public market, those companies, on average, there will be exceptions. Facebook was an exception, for example, tend to not be at the doubling stage of growth anymore from a top-line perspective. When you talk to a public market investor about growth names, you sort of triangulate to top-line numbers that are growing at 30-plus percent year-over-year. And so part of the driver, I think, of this, and it dovetails with the thematic of companies staying private longer, which is for a host of reasons we all know about, is also it's unclear whether the public market will truly pay you for a growth rate at a certain point. So if I'm a public investor and I'm looking at a company that's growing at 35% and one that's growing at 60%, I may not pay that much of a different valuation for those two businesses. When we look at these companies that are doubling, they're going to want to continue that growth rate while in their mind, either one, they're getting paid for it, or importantly, they're not at least taking the dilution at the lower valuation. So they'll wait longer. That growth rate may start to tail off a bit. The business is maturing. So you've got a larger business, frankly, a more predictable business quarter to quarter, which makes for oftentimes a better public market investment. That doesn't necessarily mean as a public investor, you're not getting access to growth. I think we all would love to be investing in public companies that are consistently growing and predictably growing at 30% year over year, but you're not necessarily focusing on companies and looking at companies that are doubling on a consistent year over year basis. So I think that is also a big difference between the public and private markets. 
Any examples or case studies you'd like to talk about for companies getting acquired? The list is long. I'd say, look, if we want to come back to the auto space briefly, full circle, I think you're looking at a space where there's been a tremendous amount of M&A activity, actually much less than the IPO environment. So sort of coming back to Tesla and Mobileye, those are really the only two recent IPOs, we defined recent in the past five years, in that space. However, there have been a lot of monetizations in that space that just simply haven't involved the public markets. The one folks may be aware of is Cruise, which was an autonomous driving business that got acquired by General Motors for just under $600 million. So there's been a significant amount of M&A. Part of that is the dynamic of that space where you have very large incumbents who are fundamentally concerned that their existing business model over the medium to long term will come under significant pressure based upon these changing mobility dynamics globally that they are looking, trying to figure out how do they frankly stay relevant. Oftentimes those decisions will be made and it will be made through acquisition. Another example in a different space recently is App Dynamics. So AppDynamics was a company, in fact, that was on its IPO roadshow, getting ready to price. I believe the M&A transaction was announced the day before that deal was set to be priced. It was acquired for $3.7 billion by Cisco. Why did Cisco make that acquisition? Because Cisco is trying to continue to reposition itself as more of a software provider, which is exactly the business that AppDynamics is in. So M&A will continue to be a significant source of liquidity, as Kathy noted earlier, for companies in the venture growth space generally, but certainly for companies that we invest in specifically. That gives me some hope because back to the unicorn idea of these companies being valued so highly, I think the last private round of AppDynamic was valued around $1.1 billion. So even those investors still made a decent return with an acquisition, not an IPO, even though that late-stage round was at the unicorn level. That's right. I mean, I think at some point that absolute valuation number can become a challenge from an M&A perspective when you're talking about a company that may be valued at 20, 30, 60 billion dollars. You know, who out there can acquire somebody for north of 100 billion dollars and who would want to? That's a small universe. So, at some point the absolute valuation can become a concern, but even if you're investing in a company that's technically a unicorn, so maybe it's worth a billion or $1.1 billion, you still can have exits through M&A that deliver a fantastic return. I mean, coming back to Mobileye for a moment, while it was public, that was a company that was acquired for $15.3 billion, a significant premium over where it was trading, but a monstrous premium over where it was financed in the private market. But there ends up being somewhat of a limit on what that price can be. So what I think from our perspective is a much more inefficient marketplace where there's a much wider opportunity set to really position yourself in are the literally thousands of companies that are hitting that growth trajectory, have the visibility on product and revenue. Again, so you're not taking true venture risk, you're taking execution risk on a business that's being shown that it works and positioning in those because then you actually have, you're not dependent on, say, the public markets or a much greater, grander exit valuation in the M&A market. 
you can look at sort of reasonable movement based on those types of growth levels that Jonathan was talking about to generate a true private market return. And I think to be clear, we want every one of our investments to be a unicorn. The key though, (laughs) is that they become a unicorn after we invest, not before. This was a great discussion today about venture growth investing. And I think three points, at least, that I took away from the discussion was, number one, in venture growth investing is a bit different from early stage investing, not only in terms of the duration, but also in terms of the risk. In early stage investing, there's still a technology risk, whether the technology will work. There's the market risk, will the dogs eat the dog food? And those types of risks are not here or lessened in the venture growth world. And in the venture growth world, it's more about the execution risk. Another takeaway, and this is a twofold takeaway, is on access, on how do you get access to companies, whether you're investing for a theme, and we talked about the virtual reality or augmented reality, there just aren't a lot of public companies. If you want to invest in that theme, you have to go private. And then that second access point was growth. There's a lot more growth to be had in the private markets than you can access through public companies. So I think those were the takeaways that I had. I hope you enjoyed our session. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. This was recorded on April 21st, 2017. Please note that companies stated are used as examples to demonstrate the points being made and are not a recommendation to buy or sell. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the asset management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 19760-1586-K.
or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, Co-Reg Number Two Zero One One Two Zero Three Five Five E, in Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type Two Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association. And is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number: Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number three three zero. In Korea, by J P Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section seven six one A and seven six one G of the Corporations Act two thousand one CTH, by J P Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN five five one four three eight three two zero eight zero, AFSL three seven six nine one nine, in Brazil by Banco J P Morgan S A, in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J P Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J P Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated, and J P Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of Finra S I P C. And J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved.